The Orange Yellow Diamond by J. S. Fletcher. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 The Back Door. Once outside in the street, Melky turned down the nearest side street, motioning Loriston to follow him. Before they had gone many yards, he edged himself close to his companion's side, at the same time throwing a cautious glance back over his shoulder. "'There's one of them bloomin' detectives after us,' said Melky. "'But that's just what's to be expected, mister. They never let you out of their sight until one of two things happen.' "'What things?' asked Loriston. "'Either you'll have to prove, beyond all doubt, that them rings is yours and was your poor mother's before you,' answered Melky. "'Or we shall have to put a hand on the chap that scragged my uncle. That's a fact, mister.' Will you put your trust and confidence in me, and do what I tell you? It's for your own good. I don't know that I could do better, responded Loriston, after a moment's thought. You're a right good fellow, Melky. I'm sure of that. What do you want me to do? Melky pulled out a handsome gold watch and consulted it. It's dinner time, he said. Come round to Mrs. Goldmark's and get some grub. I'll tell you what to do while we're eating. I've been thinking things over while that there pommenter was badgering poor Zilla. And so help me, there only is one thing for you to do, and you'd best do it sharp. But come on to Pratt Street. Don't matter if this here chap behind does shadow you. I can get the better of him as easy as I could sell this watch. It'd take all the detectives in London to beat me, if I put my mind to it. They were at Mrs. Goldmark's eating house in five minutes. Melky, who knew all the ins and outs of the establishment, conducted Loriston into an inner room, and to a corner wherein there was comparative privacy, and summoned a waitress. Not until he and his companion were halfway through their meal did he refer to the business which was in his thoughts. Then he leaned close to Loriston and began to talk. "'Mister?' he whispered. "'Where do you come from?' "'Peebles,' answered Loriston. "'You heard me tell them so in that court.' "'I'm no scholar,' said Melky. I ain't no idea where Peebles is, except that it's in Scotland. Is it far into the country, or where is it? Not far across the border, replied Loriston. Get there in a few hours, I reckon, asked Melky. You could? Very well, then, mister. You take my tip. Get there. Get there quick. Loriston laid down his knife and fork and stared. Whatever for? he exclaimed. To find somebody, anybody as can prove that those rings are yours answered melky solemnly and emphatically tain't no use denying it you're in a dangerous position the police always goes for the straightest and easiest line their line was clear enough just now pommenter gives it away they've a theory they always have a theory and when once police gets a theory nothing can drive it out of their heads their official heads anyway what they're saying and what they'll try to establish is this here that you were hard up down to less than your last penny. You went to Mr. Maltenius's. You peeked and peered through the shop window and saw him alone, or, perhaps, saw the place empty. You went in. You grabbed a couple of rings. He interrupted you. You scragged him. That's their line. And Zilla can't swear that those rings which you claim to be yours aren't her grandfather's. And up to now, you can't prove that they're yours and were once your mother's. Mister, be off to this here Peebles at once. Immediate and find somebody, some old friend, as can swear that he or she, never mind which, 
knows them rings to be your property beyond a shadow of doubt. Bring that friend back. Bring him if he has to come in an invalid carriage. Loriston was so much struck by Melky's argument and advice that it needed no more explanations to convince him of its wisdom. But how could I get away? he asked. There'll be that detective chap hanging about outside. I know I've been shadowed ever since last evening. They'll never let me get away from London, however much I wish. The probability is that if they saw me going to a railway station, they'd arrest me. My own opinion, mister, after what's taken place this morning, is that if you stop here, you'll be arrested before night, remarked Melky, coolly. I'd lay a tenor on it. But you ain't going to stop. You must go. There must be somebody in the old spot as can swear that them two rings of yours is family property, and you must find them and bring them if you value your neck. As for slipping the police, I'll make that right for you proper. Now then, what money have you got about you, Mr. Lorriston? Plenty, answered Lorriston. Nearly forty pounds, the money I got last night. Will you do exactly what I tell you? asked Melky. And do it at once, without any hesitation, any hanging about, any going home to Mother Flitwick's, or anything of that sort? Yes, replied Lorriston. I'm so sure you're right that I will. Then you listen to me, careful, said Melky. See that door in the corner? As soon as you finish that pudding, slip out of that door. You'll find yourself in a little yard. Go out of that yard, and you'll find yourself in a narrow passage. Go straight down the passage, and you'll come out in Market Street. Go straight down Southwick Street, you know it, to Oxford and Cambridge Terrace, and you'll see a cab rank right in front of you. Get into a taxi and tell the fellow to drive you to Piccadilly Circus. Leave him there. Take a turn around so he won't see what you do, and get into another taxi, and drive to St. Pancreas Church. Get out there, and put it to King's Cross Station. You'll catch the 315 for the North easy, and after you're once in it, you're all right. Get to Peebles. That's the thing. So help me, Mr. Lorriston. It's the only thing. Five minutes later, there being no one but themselves in the little room, Lorriston gave Melky a hearty grip of the hand, walked out of the door in the corner, and vanished. And Melky, left alone, pulled out his cigarette-case and began to smoke, calmly and quietly. When the waitress came back, he whispered a word or two to her. The waitress nodded with full comprehension, for everybody knew Melky at Goldmark's, and if the waitresses wanted a little jewellery now and then, he let them have it at cost price. "'So you can give me the checks for both,' said Melky. "'I'll pay em. But Melky let three-quarters of an hour elapse before he went to the desk in the outer shop. He sipped a cup of coffee, he smoked several cigarettes. It was quite a long time before he emerged into Praed Street, buttoning his overcoat, and without appearing to see anything he at once saw the man who had followed Lorston and himself from the coroner's court. Being almost preternaturally observant, he also saw the man start with surprise, but Melky showed, and felt, no surprise when the watcher came after him. "'You know me, Mr. Rubenstein,' he said, almost apologetically. "'You know, of course, we're keeping an eye on that young Scotch fellow. We've got to. He went in there, to Goldmark's with you. Is he still there?' "'Strikes me you ain't up to your job,' remarked Melky, coolly. "'He went out three-quarters of an hour ago. Gone home, I should say.' The man turned away, evidently puzzled, but just as evidently taking Melky's word. He went off in the direction of Star Street, while Melky strolled along to the pawnbroker's shop. It was necessary that he should tell his cousin of what he had done. 
Mrs. Goldmark was still with Zilla. Malky unfolded his story to the two of them. Zilla heard it with unfeigned relief. Mrs. Goldmark, who, being a young and pretty widow, was inclined to sentiment, regarded Malky with admiration. "'My, if you ain't the cute one, Mr. Rubenstein,' she exclaimed, clapping her plump hands. "'As for me now, I wouldn't have thought of that in a hundred years. But it's you that's the quick mind.' Melky laid a finger to the side of his nose. "'Do you know what, Mrs. Goldmark?' he said. "'I ain't going to let them police fellows put a hand on young Lauriston. Not me. I've my own ideas about this here business. Wait till I put my hand on somebody, see? Don't it all come out clear to you? If I find the right man, then there ain't no more suspicion attaching to this young chap, ain't it?' "'Oh, I'm no fool, Mrs. Goldmark. Don't you make no mistake.' "'I'm sure,' asserted Mrs. Goldmark. "'Yes, indeed, you don't carry your eyes in your head for nothing, Mr. Rubenstein.' Zilla, who had listened abstractedly to these compliments, suddenly turned on her cousin. "'What are you going to do, then, Melky?' she demanded. "'What's all this business about that book? And what steps are you thinking of taking?' But Melky rose and, shaking his head, buttoned up his overcoat, as if he were buttoning in a multitude of profound secrets. "'What you've got to do, just now, Zilla, and Mrs. Goldmark, too,' he answered, "'is to keep quiet tongues about what I'd done with young Lauriston. There ain't to be a word said. If any of them police come around here, asking about him, you don't know nothing, see? You ain't seen him since he walked out of that court with me, see? Which, of course, you ain't. And as for the rest, you leave that to yours truly.' "'Oh, what it is to have a mind!' exclaimed Mrs. Goldmark. "'I ain't no mind, beyond managing my business.' "'Don't you show your mind in managing that,' said Melky, admiringly. "'What do I always say of you, Mrs. Goldmark? Don't I always say you're the smartest businesswoman in all Paddington? Ain't that having a mind? Oh, I think you're the beautifulest mind, Mrs. Goldmark.' With this compliment, Melky left Mrs. Goldmark and Zilla, and went away to his lodgings, he was aware of a taxicab drawn up at Mrs. Flitwick's door as he went up the street. Inside Mrs. Flitwick's shabby hall he found that good woman talking to a stranger, a well-dressed young gentleman, who was obviously asking questions. Mrs. Flitwick turned to Melky with an air of relief. "'Perhaps you can tell this gentleman where Mr. Loriston is, Mr. Rubenstein?' she said. "'I ain't seen him since he went out first thing this morning.' Melky looked the stranger over narrowly. Then he silently beckoned him outside the house, and walked him out of earshot. "'You ain't the friend from Scotland?' asked Melky. "'Him what sent the banknote last night?' "'Yes,' assented the stranger. "'I see you're aware of that. My name is Purdy. John Purdy. Where is Lauriston? I particularly want to see him.' Melky tapped the side of his nose and whispered, "'He's on his way to where you come from, mister,' he said. "'Here, I know who you are, and you'll know me in one minute. Come up to my sitting-room.'" End of chapter 11